Okay, so we've been saying, like I've said, we've been working our way through this series, looking at our vision and core values as a church. And above everything, we believe that we have a vision and a calling to love God and love people. It's very simple. It's not groundbreaking, but it is important and powerful for us as individuals and us as a church. So we should love God and love people. And then our values that we've been working through these past few weeks really help to cement and give us, the, uh, give us the equipping for how we can carry out that vision as a local church. So we've been talking about pursuing the heart of God, helping people find their God-given purpose, bringing hope to the community, restoring broke, the brokenhearted. How good was Ruth last week? I caught up on that on Friday. It was a fantastic and challenging word. And then this morning, we're going to be looking at our final value, creating a culture of generosity. So let me just read our overarching verse for this, this value. It's taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 11. And it says this, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So the encouragement that comes from that verse is that uh, with this biblical principle to be generous, we will be enriched by God. Another translation says that God will make us rich so that we can always be generous. Who knows that without finances, we're going to struggle to be financially generous. Without energy in abundance, we're going to struggle to be generous with our time. So God blesses us, he enriches us and empowers us so that we can then be generous. God blesses us so we can bless others. So when Ruth and I were talking and praying through the future of this church, we landed on this, this value, this principle as our final core value because essentially generosity, it, it kind of flows through everything that we've been sharing up to now. It all requires some element of generosity and we're passionate about generosity. It's something that we believe we, and we try to live out as a couple, as a family, from sowing into this church, from opening up our home, from giving us a, a, of our time and of our energy. We try to live generous lives and we recognize that actually being generous is not an obligation. Being generous is not an obligation, it's actually a privilege. We should see this, this idea, this principle of generosity as a privilege. We get to be generous. We don't have to be generous. We get to. And we recognize that God has given richly to us, and, and actually it's our honor to give back to him, isn't it? He gives to us so we can give back to him. So this morning, what I want to do in the time that I've got is to look at one of my favorite characters from the Bible, and hopefully as we focus on that, he will challenge us and inspire us and give us uh, something that we need this morning to help us live out a culture of generosity in our church and is our, in our own lives as individuals. So that character is David. David, the shepherd boy, the giant slayer, the uh, poet, the musician, the king, and a man after God's own heart. So I want to read to us this morning from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And as we look at this portion of scripture, what we're seeing is David preparing to build the temple. You see, he has this desire on his heart, this burden within himself to build a temple, a place for him to worship, a place for the people of Israel to worship God. 
So as we pick up this story starting in verse 14, David is lifting up a prayer of praise to God. And he says, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We're foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and it all belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. Amen. He's, so he's believing and praying for a culture of generosity, not just in himself, but in the people of Israel. He says, keep these desires in the hearts of your people forever, not just during this process of sowing into the temple, but beyond that and into the future and for generations to come, may people catch this culture of generosity and live it out in their lives. I think it's great that he sets that example, but what he's praying for is that they will catch something of his heart and live it not just because they see him doing it, not just because they feel obligated or he's being generous, so I should be generous, but actually because they want to, because they recognize that it's a privilege in their lives. Are there any romantics in the house this morning? Any romantics? Well, oh, one. Okay, excellent. <laughs> Sorry, single ladies. Yeah. <laughs> So I want to share with you just briefly the story of how I proposed to my lovely wife. So let me set the scene for you. It was 2006. I was a student in Manchester and it was Christmas time. And so I thought, I've been planning this for a while, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to treat my, my uh, lovely girlfriend to a romantic dinner. So I took her to no other than Pizza Hut <laughs> on Deansgate in Manchester. So that was the start of this romantic evening at Christmas time. So we went from Pizza Hut after this delicious, splendid pizza into the Christmas markets. I don't know if you've ever been to Manchester Christmas markets. It's just a fantastic vibe and atmosphere. So we, we kind of milled around the, the markets for a while. And then I, I took her to the Manchester Eye or the Manny Eye, as the locals called it. And I was like, let's go on this. This would be great fun. So we queued up and we, we went on. And thankfully, we got our own pod to ourselves. It wasn't, there wasn't other people in there. And so I'm, you know, at this point, I'm beginning to sweat a little bit. You know, it was cold outside, so I had this big jacket on, and now we're in this pod. It's not so cold, and I'm a bit sweaty and nervous. And we go round the Manchester Eye, and we get to the top. And I thought, oh, when we get to the top, then I'll pop the question. So we got to the top, and I was just a little bit too nervous, so I let it go back down again. And then on the way down, I'm praying, God, let it go round again. and Because I didn't know how many times it was going to go round. Thankfully, it started to go round again. And I'm like, this time, 
get the courage. I know she's going to say yes. I don't know why I'm nervous. And so we got to the top and I was like, this is going to be it. No, no, it's not going to be it. I can't do it. And so it went round again. I'm like, there's no way it's going round a third time. Please, God, let it go round a third time. I promise I'll do it this time. And so thankfully it goes round a third time. And I'm like, this has got to be it. I better do it now. Otherwise it's never going to happen. So we get to the top of the Manchester Eye and it was a bit small and crowded and I was very nervous so I didn't get down on one knee which is what I wanted to do but I didn't I just reached into my pocket and pulled out this ring and said will you marry me and thank goodness she said yes <laughs> Whew. it was nerve-wracking but what happened as I placed the ring on her finger is that the moon caught the ginormous obnoxious diamond on this ring and shone all around this pod or not because I was a student so the budget for the ring was very minimal how, how much should you spend on an engagement ring any thoughts five or ten pounds amazing anyone else something to do with a relation to your salary and three times your salary yeah, anyone else got any suggestions? Or one month, perhaps? So pre-1930s, let me give you a history lesson. Pre-1930s, less than 10% of engagement rings even had a diamond in them altogether. It just wasn't the done thing. But then the 1930s came, and a company called De Beers Diamond Cartel thought, this is not on. We need to make some cash. So they launched a marketing campaign that said, you should give one month's salary into buying your engagement ring and then they also partnered that with a campaign that said diamonds are forever so they were really plugging the fact that you should be buying a super expensive diamond for your fiance and then in the 1970s that then jumped up to the three months salary so these guys were, were well they must have been on De Beers to come up with that idea it was absolutely genius so they they pitched this campaign and people kind of bought into it but I was a student now, what's, uh, what's one month student salary? Well, it's minus a whole bunch of money. So I'm not going to lie to you. The engagement ring wasn't particularly valuable, but it was, it's the heart, isn't it, when it comes to generosity? It's the heart behind it. But there was still something within me that said, do you know what? I need to give my wife the ring that she deserves. So fast forward with me to our 10-year anniversary. And I thought, now is the time. Now is the time. So actually, throughout that whole year, in 2017, I worked as a paperboy. Six mornings a week, I would get up at six o'clock, cycle round to the paper shop as a 30-something-year-old man and pick up my two bags of papers and deliver the papers around my local neighborhood. And for one week's work, I got 20 quid. It just doesn't seem worth it, does it? But when you add up 50 or whatever it is times 20 pounds, you get a reasonable sum of money. Okay, so I was like, I, you know, I've committed to this, I'm going to do it, and, and I thought, you know what, at the end of this, I'm going to have some money, and I'm going to invest it, and finally buy the ring that she deserves, and so our anniversary came round, and I said, you know what, I'm going to upgrade our romantic dinner from Pizza Hut to Miller and Carter, now that place is expensive, flipping heck, 
funny story as an aside, we were going out to that and hate bulky wallets and stuff, so I just took cash with me. And then we arrived at the restaurant and I'd forgotten just how expensive it was. And I was like, I don't think we can afford a three-course meal here and some wine. You, we might get dessert. So I just spelled it out to her, you know, we've been together 10 years, it's fine. So I was like, listen, I could definitely buy you a steak, I'll buy you a glass of wine, but we'll have to weigh up the dessert, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, so it got to the end of that meal and I presented her with this beautiful diamond ring with 10 diamonds in it. And it was a ring that I was so privileged and honored to get to bless her with. Now, it might not be valuable to some people's standards, but to me, I'd worked super hard in order to get this money to bless her with this ring. And do you think when I was giving her that ring that I was thinking, I regret this year of being a paper boy. I regret every second of that hard work. Do you think that I was thinking, I wonder what she's got me in return? Because I've worked my butt off for this. I hope she's got me something decent. Do you think I was thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to get a nice piece of jewelry too? Not for one second. My heart was just, I want to bless you with this because you deserve it, because you are awesome, because you are incredible. So I want to give you this because I'm passionate about you. And so I blessed her with this ring that she deserves. And you can go and tell her how awesome I think she is and build me up and that'll get me out of any arguments for the next few weeks at least. So back to David, back to David. So the first time we meet David is in 1 Samuel 16 and, and Samuel comes to town with the instruction from God that he's going to anoint the next king of Israel and it's going to be from uh, one of the sons of a guy called Jesse. So he rocks up to town and I'm going to race through this story because we don't have much time. And so Je he says to Jesse, bring me out your sons, one of them is going to be the next king of Israel. So he brings out his eldest son and Samuel takes a look at him and he goes, nope, next. And he brings out the next son, nope, next. And he brings out the next son and the next son until he's got through seven sons. And Samuel's like, no, it's none of these people. Have you got any others? And so Jesse's like, well, yeah, there's the youngest, but he's a shepherd out in the fields. He's a bit of a runt, and I don't really know why you would want me to, to bring him in. But, but Samuel's like, bring him in. We're not going anywhere until I have met this youngest son of yours. And so from the moment that David walked in the room, God spoke to Samuel and said, this is the one. This is the one. So in that moment, David was anointed to be king. I love that David's journey into that privileged place came from a place of obscurity. You know, he wasn't the one who was always front and center. He wasn't the oldest. He wasn't the tallest. It does say he was good looking though. But he wasn't the one that was, that was front and center all the time. He came from a place of relative obscurity into this place of incredible privilege as one of the greatest kings who ever lived. And I think, I like to think that he represents any one of us who here this morning has ever felt overlooked, who has ever felt uh, passed by for whatever reason. David shows us that no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, there's hope. There is hope. You see, even his dad didn't see his potential. He didn't even think that it was worthwhile bringing him out on this parade of sons. He just thought, he's worthless. There's no reason to bring him out. But God saw his potential. God saw the potential in his son. 
And as I said a few weeks ago, God sees the potential in each and every one of us. Even before we were born, he saw the end. He saw your journey. He saw where you were going to go and what you were going to do in his name. He sees our potential. And so in the next scene, the very next scene, we see David rocking up to meet his brothers and the army, and they're facing this incredible giant called Goliath, and they're all quaking in their boots and saying, no one can defeat this giant. And David says, well, I'll have a go. So he goes to the king and he says, I'll have a go at defeating this guy. And he gets laughed at. And once again, he's being overlooked and, and judged in that sense. But Saul says, fine, go on, you can have a go. And he puts his armor on him. And David's like, nope, this is not going to work. Take it off. I just want to be me. So as that little shepherd boy with his sling, he goes and grabs some stones. And he goes out to face this giant. And the giant Goliath laughs at him and says, are you kidding me? There's no way you can defeat me. And David says, well, you might come at me with sword and with spear, but I come at you in the name of God. So I am going to take you down. I'm going to chop off your head. And then I'm going to come after the rest of your army. So there. And he flipping does it. He flipping does it. So from being anointed as king, all the way through defeating Goliath and then on through his life, we see these epic moments where David lives in the confidence and the boldness that he has in God. But life isn't all rosy for him, is it? You know, you just take one look at the Psalms, and I think Ruth looked at that a little bit last week, and you see actually he's, he's quite an emotional character. He has these dramatic highs, but he also has these plummeting lows of despair. He has these ups and downs. And actually, I think that's probably why I find him so relatable, because he's emotional. And, and what I love is that the Bible doesn't skirt over any of this stuff. It shows his humanity. It shows the epic moments where he's, he's walking and living in the purposes that God has for his life. But it also shows when he's doubting, when he's fearful, when he's scared. You know, David had an affair, he was a murderer, but he had a passion for God, and he had a passion for God's house. In Psalm 69, David sings, passion for your house consumes me. David was so passionate about God's house that he had this burden to build the temple. He had a burden to build the temple, only he wasn't going to see it. He wanted to build God this temple, and yet God said to him, you aren't going to build my temple. It's going to be your son, because you've spilt far too much blood, so I'm not going to let you be involved in building my temple. God still wanted the temple, but he wasn't going to let David do it. So how do you think David reacted in that moment when God said, okay, I see your heart and your passion for building me a temple, but... You're not going to do it. Did he take his ball and go home? Did he say, okay, fine, well, if I'm not going to see it, then no one's going to see it. And I'm going to take all this wealth that I've accumulated over my life, and I'm going to keep it for myself. Not one bit. You see, even though he wasn't going to see the temple being built, he still had a passion for God's house. He still had this passion for God's house. So he invested into it. He gave, and it says just before the passage that we read, that he brought gold and silver and bronze and jewels and all this wealth that he just gave to his son Solomon so that he could go and build God the temple 
that he deserved. He didn't take it all and go home and hold it back for himself. He just blessed God with it and said, you can use all of this stuff to build the temple. I don't know about you, but I've got a passion for God's house. I've got a passion for God's house. In God's house, I've made some of my best friends. In God's house, I met my amazing wife. In God's house, I found forgiveness and I found salvation and I found purpose and I found calling in God's house. I have a passion for God's house. I don't, get, I don't have to do this. I get to do this. I don't have to do this. I get to do this. So what I want to do, and I'm going to hammer through these points super quickly, is just to look at some, some ways that we can recognize how David took this attitude and this culture of generosity and brought about an example to us as how we can live it out. And the first one is that we need to activate generosity. We need to activate generosity because who knows that generosity doesn't come naturally to us. You know, we need to work at it. We need to be intentional about it. It's a little bit like love in that sense that you can go through that honeymoon period and it's fantastic and you can think of nothing else but loving on your partner or your spouse. But, but actually after a while, when you begin to live with them and learn all their habits and get to know them a little bit deeper and you realize that that love that you first felt has perhaps dwindled a little bit and now, now you're having to choose love. You're having to be intentional about love. And it's like that with generosity because, you know, we can have a passion for God's house and, and we can get overwhelmed with this, this feeling of, oh, I just want to bless God's house. But then after a while of spending time in church and getting bored of the same old conversations and the same format of church and we just get a bit tired and, oh, this is a bit dull. And now we're having to choose to live generously. Now I'm having to choose to have that passion for God's house. Now I'm having to be intentional about the way I treat things and the way I look at things and the lens with which I approach God's house. You know, we're talking about, about, about finances and not just about finances, but that's definitely part of this message of generosity. And if I'm honest, it's not a comfortable subject to talk about from the platform. I remember the first time I brought a message of generosity, it was actually a four-week or three-week series on generosity. And it feels, as a preacher, really uncomfortable because you know when you start to talk about finances, people begin to shuffle in their seats and get a little bit sweaty and uncomfortable. And it feels just the same for me, so I can relate to how you're feeling. But the reality is that we have a passion for generosity. Not only that, it's biblical to be generous. It, money isn't a subject that Jesus skirted by. Money isn't a subject that the Bible skirted by. In fact, let me just give you some references. In the Bible, the, the Bible talks about salvation 220 times. The Bible talks about faith 450 times. But the Bible talks about finances and good stewardship 2,300 times. So this is an important message. And I'm not here to guilt anyone. That is not our heart. My, I'm not here to manipulate anyone into giving financially into this church. If you think that's what we're doing, if you think that's why we do giving talks on a Sunday, please hear my heart. That is not what we're doing. We're just teaching into a biblical principle. 
Because there's people who haven't been brought up in church, who don't know about the principles of tithing, who don't understand God's importance and the importance he places on generosity. So we're just teaching into that, okay? That's what we're doing. Let me skip past some stuff. So God calls us to rely on him, doesn't he? He calls us to to trust in him. And so in church, he might say, oh, I want you to surrender your life. Will you surrender your life? And we're like, yes, God, I'll surrender my life. Will you surrender your dreams to me? Yes, you can have my dreams. Your will be done in my life. Will you surrender your children to me? Yes, you can have them. (laughs) Flipping heck, that took a while, didn't it? (laughs) And then God says, will you give me your money? And we're like, wait, what? You want me to get, let me just think about that for a moment. I'm not so sure. And for some reason, it's something that we kind of get a blockage about. But, but Jesus knew, didn't he, that money can easily become our God. Money can easily become our God. And money isn't evil. In fact, I pray that each and every one of us here this morning prospers as long as we understand the importance of tithing. Okay, so I pray prosper over each and every one of you this morning. But money isn't evil. It's only the love of money that's evil. You see, God enriches us so that we can bless others. He gives us what we need so that we can pour out to other people. It all comes from job, from God. Everything that we have comes from God. It's his anyway. We're just returning it back to him, aren't we? When we're giving, we're just returning back to him. And so the next point I want to bring is that to reap in the future... We need to sow into the present. To reap in the future, we need to sow into the present. You see, David had this passion to build God a temple. He really wanted to build a place that was worthy of his God, worthy of his king. But then as it came to light that he would never see this temple built, that didn't squash his passion. You see, he recognized this principle that he needed to, if he wanted to see there be any kind of reaping in the future, whether it was for his generation or generations to come, he needed to sow into the present. So he didn't withhold any of his wealth. He gave it all to his son to see God's house built. You see, this principle of sowing and reaping, it's, it's not new to us. In fact, it's fairly, fairly common sense, isn't it? You know, if you want to reap something, then you've got to sow something. If you want joy, be joyful. If you want uh, trust, trust people. If you want friends, be a friend. You know, it's quite simple, this, this, this sowing and reaping principle. But there's a challenge. What do you do with what you reap? You see, we can sow into God's kingdom, but we're going to reap in return. But what do we do with that stuff that we're reaping from God? Do we go, thank you very much, I've given you something and you've given me even more. In return, I'm going to keep that to myself. That's not the principle that God teaches. You see, when we reap something, we then need to sow it back in to the kingdom. That's called good stewardship. And see, this idea of generosity and stewardship is two two sides of the same coin. If you'll excuse the pun, you see, if we want to be generous, we've got to be good stewards. If we want to be able to give financially, we've got to save our finances so that we can sow back into the kingdom. You know, it's not about, we believe in the, in the, 
the culture and the principle of tithing, but it's not about the figure. It's not about this 10%. Whatever is comfortable to you. You know, if 1% is what you feel comfortable giving, then give 1%. Because it's not about the number, it's about the heart. It's not about the value, it's about the heart. We just need to look at that, that portion of scripture where the, the widow gives just two coins rather than all of the religious leaders pouring in their wealth because her heart was about giving what she could to bless God's kingdom. David recognized that his wealth wasn't for him. It was just seed in his hand that he could sow back into the kingdom. So he gave it willingly. And so finally, I want to share this, this idea that actually to be blessed means to be a blessing. To be blessed is to be a blessing. Paul says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And like the story of me giving Ruth that eternity ring, I wasn't thinking about what I was going to get. I just wanted to give. It was my pleasure. It was my privilege. That was my heart to be generous in that way. You know, if you don't feel blessed this morning, can I encourage you? Be a blessing. Be intentional, like we said at the beginning. Be intentional about blessing someone, about being generous. Go out of your way this week to bless someone. Do it extravagantly if you can. In fact, do it without them even knowing even better because then you're not doing it for yourself. You're just doing it for them. You know, one act of generosity that sticks in my mind, when we were, not long after we were married, our fridge freezer broke and we couldn't afford to buy a new one. And so we were praying, God, you've got to provide. I think I might have shared this before, but I'll say it again because it overwhelmed me in that moment. And so we were praying to God. And then a few days later, we get this text message from a number we didn't know saying, open the door. So we went to our front door on this winter's evening. And there is this box of this brand new fridge freezer. No person in sight, just a fridge freezer that's able to send text messages. And it's incredible. To this day, we still don't know who it is that did it, but it blessed us so much. And I am certain that whoever that was is enjoying that giving as much as we enjoyed that receiving, if not more. In 1 Chronicles 29 starting at verse 17 it says and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you Lord the God of our fathers Abraham Isaac and Israel keep these desires and thoughts in your hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you you see this principle of generosity is not a one-time thing this is a culture that we want to create it's something we want to see flowing throughout us as individuals and flowing through us as a church. I believe that it is not just for now, but it is something forever, something that will outlast this generation, something that in years to come, in decades to come, people who call Hope Church their home will still be living out a culture of generosity because God calls us to have that desire within our hearts forever, forever. You know, God set a culture of generosity way beyond anything we could ever do when he sent his son to die for us, didn't he? See, God chose to give, to give his son to us, to die for us so that we can have everlasting life, so that we can have relationship with our father. He gave the greatest gift and he continues to give to us. He continues to bless us. He continues to pour into our lives 
And so it should be our heart and our desire and our privilege to give back to him in whatever way we can. So there we are. We are, as a church, we are for pursuing the heart of God. We're for helping people find their God-given purpose. We are for bringing hope to the community. We are for restoring the brokenhearted and we are for creating a culture of generosity to enable us to love God and love people. That is our heart as a church. That is a, the heartbeat that we want to we wanna continue to share with everyone here. And, I, you know, that will filter through the year. And like I say, next, next week we are going to be sharing some more practical stuff around what this looks like. And I hope and I pray that, that as we share those things, you'll recognize that these are not just words that we are speaking from the platform, but we recognize that words are not enough. We need to put our money where our mouth is. We need to get our hands dirty in that sense. We need to begin to actually do something rather than just saying something. And so we are passionate about that, and we're going to share some of that stuff with you next week. And, you know, it's been fantastic to meet with those of you who have met with um, for these kind of shape interviews, if you want to call them that. Everyone arrives first and they're a little bit nervous and it's like a job interview, but we're like, please don't feel like that. This is just a conversation. We just want to chat through your heart and your passion and your gifts and your abilities so that we can paint this picture of what this congregation is like so that when we start to put into practice some of this stuff that we want to do, we can call on the right people. There's no pressure. If you tell me that you can do something and I ask you to do that thing, you don't have to. It's about heart, isn't it? So if you're not passionate about, I don't know, serving in a youth club, if you say, oh, I love kids, and then I say, why don't you get involved in this youth club we're going to start? And you're like, well, actually, I don't feel that's right for me right now. I don't have, you know, the capacity to do that. That's fine. There's no pressure. There's no guilt. There's no obligation. It should be a privilege for you to serve, to you to be generous in that way. So whatever you feel is right in your hearts, you can give in that way. That is the culture that we want to create. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence in this place this morning. And I thank you for this vision and these values that you have placed on our hearts. And I pray that as we've gone through these past five weeks that that you've highlighted to us something that we as individuals can catch hold of, that you've, you've rekindled that fire within us that, that gives us the passion that we need to, to be able to serve your house, to be able to serve your kingdom, to look beyond our own needs and our own desires and put you first above all things because that is what you call us to do, to love you above everything else. And I pray that out of that relationship will come a recognition within ourselves of what you're calling us to be as individuals and how you're calling each and every one of us to love others. So I pray that you will continue to equip us, continue to, to show us who you see us to be so that we can walk faithfully and confidently in the plans and purposes that you have for our lives. So we love you, we worship you, and we give you all the praise and honor that you deserve in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.